1: Today, in Wisconsin, there's an election with seismic stakes. It's for a seat on the state Supreme Court, where conservatives hold a 4-3 to three majority. The reason this race is so important is because Wisconsin is also a state where a Democratic governor and a Republican supermajority in the legislature are constantly tossing disagreements to the state Supreme Court. Justices on that bench have essentially become the arbiters on issues from absentee voting to public health emergencies to upholding the 2020 presidential election results. If you live there and you own a TV, you might have noticed some rather intense advertisements for what might usually be a quiet, off-year electoral race. Slate's senior writer on Courts and the Law, Mark Joseph Stern, told me about this $45 million blitz.
2: Wisconsinites are getting flooded with these ads that are ostensibly for an independent and nonpartisan position on the Supreme Court but that certainly have a political valence and, uh, you know, both of the judges to some degree are wrestling with how much of their political views they want to put out there for the public to absorb and vote on.
1: It turns out they want to say quite a bit about their political views. Take this ad, which includes sheriffs in uniform forecasting a crime hellscape if one candidate wins. Opponent,
0: Janet Protosiewicz is a Milwaukee County judge with a long history of letting dangerous criminals back into our streets. Directly undermining the work of our officers and putting your family at risk. We can't afford to have judges who put their own agendas above the law. It's time.
1: Or this one that features a devastating pregnancy story. There were severe health complications with my baby when I was pregnant. We made the decision to have an abortion so our daughter wouldn't suffer. Dan Kelly doesn't believe that women should even have that freedom.
2: Certainly, as we get closer to the election, both of the candidates are trying to sharpen their positions and sharpen their attacks on on their opponents. Um, And you're really seeing almost a kind of apocalyptic undercurrent in some of these ads, frankly, on both sides.
1: But Mark doesn't think that apocalyptic undercurrent is overdramatic. This election is essentially liberals last chance to overturn Wisconsin's near total abortion ban from 1849. The next opportunity won't come until 2026 at the earliest. These high stakes have drawn in an unprecedented amount of spending on the race.
2: This is a super important race. And I actually do think that it is good and healthy to have both of the candidates and a lot of these outside spending groups making it super clear to Wisconsin voters the choice that they have to make and why it is really important that they participate in this off-year, off-cycle election and and make the choice that they want for Wisconsin.
1: Today on the show, Wisconsin's massively important decision at the ballot box. I'm Mary C. Curtis, filling in for Mary Harris. Stick around.
0: This episode is brought to you by SAP. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI will not help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos but it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia, or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks, or automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology, real world results. That's SAP Business AI. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile,
1: Wisconsin's Supreme Court election has become so contentious because the race has the potential to flip the court from its current conservative majority to a liberal one. But this isn't the first time a Supreme Court race has taken on an unusually partisan bent. The state Supreme Court has been the target of political parties since the 2010s, when the former Republican governor, Scott Walker, teamed up with the infamous political donors, the Koch brothers, to shift the courts to the right.
2: The Koch brothers at that time were very interested in using Wisconsin as an experiment, as a kind of laboratory for their political organization. Scott Walker was a very close friend and ally of the Kochs. And they understood that if they were going to push through a bunch of these far-reaching laws that would shift Wisconsin to the right, you know, it was traditionally a very purple state, they were going to need an appliance judiciary. And so many people may remember in, in like 2010, Scott walker and the legislature really crushed organized labor in wisconsin passed a series of laws that dramatically stripped collective bargaining rights and other rights from unions that was designed to weaken both labor and democrats and everybody involved in those decisions knew that was going to go to the state supreme court and they needed a state supreme court that was going to uphold these laws and they got one by spending a ton of money on judicial elections and making sure that they had allies on the high court
1: This rightward shift continued unchallenged until 2018, when Wisconsin elected the current Democratic governor, Tony Evers.
2: But his administration was really boxed in by all of these conservative judges who had been elected to the bench. And so throughout Tony Evers' first term, we saw a ton of pushback from the Wisconsin Supreme Court on all kinds of stuff, especially during COVID, on shutdown orders and mandates and all of the early 2020 protections to stop the spread. The Wisconsin Supreme Court's conservative majority aggressively pushed back against that. And also really pushed back against efforts to expand voting rights in the run-up to and the wake of the 2020 election. And so I think, like, for for those of us who've been watching this for so long, there have been a series of near-misses where Democrats came kind of close to getting back a majority and just barely lost it. And because of that, Tony Evers has been really, really struggling to get any of his agenda passed, especially with a Republican legislature that has gerrymandered itself into a permanent majority.
1: The conservative court really drew eyes in the aftermath of the 2020 election when Trump sued Wisconsin in an attempt to overturn the state's election results. The court did ultimately reject Trump's lawsuit, but by a one-vote margin.
2: It should not be comforting to Wisconsinites that, like, their democracy was upheld by a four to three margin. Three justices, uh, three conservatives on the Wisconsin Supreme Court absolutely wanted to overturn the election. And even after the election, they issued this nutty opinion saying they thought the 2020 votes were tainted by illegal voting and that nobody could really trust the results. And, you know, that that is their firm conviction. And that is not something that a majority of Wisconsinites want to be dealing with come 2024's presidential election. So yeah, I've been watching this court because it's arguably the most powerful organ of the entire Wisconsin government. It does stuff that we don't typically expect a court to do. And this race is going to determine whether it's going to continue to be a foe of Tony Evers or whether it's going to step out of the way and let him govern as he sees fit.
1: These high stakes have led to an extremely contentious race. Wisconsin's judicial elections are technically nonpartisan, meaning candidates don't run as Democrats or Republicans. But the race has taken on a very partisan tone. Milwaukee Judge Janet Protasewicz is running on a more progressive platform. Her opponent, Daniel Kelly, who served as a justice on the state Supreme Court before, is a known conservative.
2: And Janet Protasewicz has really burned her her image and her persona into the minds of Wisconsinites. She's super charismatic. She seems really nice. She has that sort of Wisconsin-nice style and comes across as very friendly and very smart. And Daniel Kelly, on the other hand, you know, he sounds a little bit robotic in a lot of these ads. He hasn't staked out a clear position on a lot of issues. And I think that leads to some mistrust among voters because when one candidate is saying what she believes and the other is concealing it, you know know what you're going to get with one and the other is kind of a mystery box.
1: You wonder, what is this person hiding, right?
2: Right, exactly.
1: What issue has been the primary focus for each candidate?
2: So, you know, for Janet Protasewicz, like undoubtedly, this is a race about abortion. Post-Dobbs, this is all about... Making sure that Wisconsin is a bastion of reproductive rights. And this is an issue because there is a law on the books in Wisconsin that is just entirely rooted in like the 1800s era, super patriarchal, misogynistic thinking about women that criminalizes, outlaws, prohibits virtually all abortions that nobody had thought about for a long time, but that suddenly sprang back into effect when the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade. And Janet Protasewicz has said, like, in my view, she's basically come out and said this, like, that violates the Wisconsin Constitution, there are all kinds of guarantees of equal liberty in the Wisconsin Constitution, and, and this ban is violating women's rights to exercise their own choices. And Daniel Kelly, I think, has actually kind of struggled to come up with a good counterbalance to that. I think he knows that running as an anti-abortion candidate is not smart. Like, abortion rights seems to pull well in Wisconsin. And so this is why uh, Kelly's campaign is kind of floundering, because it's unclear precisely what he stands for. He's doing the balls and strikes routine, but he isn't necessarily giving voters a lot of reasons to support him, except for a wink to say, hey, I'm going to keep the status quo on this court and make sure that it stays a kind of conservative opponent of, of the Democratic. Governor.
1: There is a lawsuit challenging that Wisconsin law, though, that could reach the state Supreme Court this fall, making the stakes even higher. So, has either candidate explicitly said how they might vote or rule on this issue?
2: Yeah, and this is what's so interesting. Janet Protasewicz has come out and said, in a very unusual move, that she believes women should have the freedom to make their own decisions about abortion. Now, she hasn't come out and specifically said, I think this law from the 1800s, this 1849 ban is unconstitutional and I'm gonna strike it down. But a huge number of her ads actually talk about abortion, which is just very unusual for this kind of race. For Daniel Kelly, it's not quite so stark. And I think that's because the anti-abortion groups are really just beginning to wrestle with the reality that opposing abortion is not super popular. The polling suggests it's really unpopular in Wisconsin. You know, the most that Daniel Kelly will generally say is he'll go out and attack Janet Protosewitz for being so explicit and blatant about supporting abortion rights, which he deems legislating from the bench. But he has not come out and said, I plan to uphold this abortion ban because I think that abortion should be criminalized in Wisconsin.
1: That's quite a tightrope he's trying to walk. It may not work. We'll see. Uh, So in terms of voting rights, that's also a big issue. So Kelly said that the 2024 presidential campaign and the 10 really crucial electoral votes that the swing state of Wisconsin has, that they really shouldn't be a part of the discussion in this race. Why is he shying away from that?
2: (laughs) Well, I think it's in part because he was involved in Trump's effort to overturn the 2020 election, and he's aware that that was unpopular and that voters are worried about the same thing happening in 2024. Wisconsin's electoral votes are really important. He was an advisor to the individuals trying to appoint fake electors to Donald Trump in 2020. And, you know, every poll that has ever been taken on this issue says that Americans did not like Trump's attempted coup did not like all of the the chicanery with the fake electors and want the the winner to be the winner and not a sore loser trying to nullify millions of votes and so i think what daniel kelly is trying to do here is like assure voters hey i'm not i'm not that crazy you know <laughs> i'm not seizing this position just because i want to Rig the 2024 election and nullify a bunch of votes so that Donald Trump wins this state. And that is maybe not very successful because (laughs) Janet Protasewicz is out here, you know, attacking him on his work in 2020. But that is clearly the effort.
1: Well, talk us through how the court might weigh in again on election rules and what that could look like. You've got the state's voter ID laws, and they've already shaped a lot of the state's election laws, right? Uh, Prohibiting drop boxes talk about that
2: absolutely absolutely there are a lot of voting restrictions on the books right now that could fall if the Wisconsin Supreme Court swings left. And voter ID is a really good example. There are all kinds of restrictions on early voting uh, that are designed to make it more difficult for people in places like Milwaukee that are heavily Democratic. There have been a lot of consolidations of polls in places like Milwaukee so that there's just a couple polling centers and people have to wait in hours-long lines just to cast a ballot. And if this court flips to the left, instead of standing in the way of voting rights and making it harder for people to vote and harder for people to know the rules, it's probably going to strike down a bunch of these restrictions and do everything in its power to make sure that people can get access to the ballot.
1: This race could also impact election maps in the state. Wisconsin's current maps are seen as some of the most gerrymandered in the country in favor of the Republican Party. If Janet Protosawitz wins and flips the court to a liberal majority, There's a chance the court could strike down the current maps.
2: And so what, what we're seeing now is some undertones of anti-gerrymandering in a lot of Janet Protosewitz's ads and campaign speeches and broad defenses of democracy, which raises the very real possibility that if she flips this Supreme Court, she might be willing to strike down some of these gerrymanders, especially the state legislative gerrymander, and to force the state to redraw a map that actually reflects the composition of voters and that deprives Republicans of their massive majority. That would be a total game changer for the state. It would mean for the first time that Democrats had a real chance of winning one or both houses in the state legislature. And that, above everything else, may be what Republican lawmakers are most afraid of here.
1: After the break, the high stakes of this race have led to a wave of outside spending. Could that determine the outcome?
0: Today in the Middle East. It happens in yeah. Ukraine has consequences yeah. for what's Around happening. AI. Hello listeners, I'm Gabrielle Sierra, host of the Why It Matters podcast from the Council on Foreign Relations. Look, the world of international affairs can feel overwhelming and complex. But it also shapes our lives every single day. So it pays to know what's going on out there. Why It Matters is a foreign policy podcast for the rest of us with a little bit of humor and a lot of questions. We're here to break down global topics and bring the world home to you. So join us every two weeks on Why It Matters wherever you listen. In the latest season of Blind Spot from WNYC Studios and the History Channel, join host Kai Wright as he travels back to a pivotal moment in the history of this country. Decades before COVID-19, a virus tore through some of our most vulnerable communities while the wider world looked away. Throughout the season, you'll meet people who demanded that they and their illness be seen. Mothers, children, doctors, nurses, nuns, and sex workers. All leading to a woman who literally helped change the definition of AIDS. Blindspot. The plague in the shadows. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.
1: If you want to understand what is happening in the United States right now, you really need to understand what's happening with the courts, the law, and the Supreme Court. The battle between democracy and whatever this cage match is that we're witnessing, it's going to be won and lost at the ballot box, but it's also going to be won and lost in the courtrooms. I'm Dahlia Lithwick. I host Slate's legal podcast, Amicus, and we are doubling our output bringing you weekly episodes from here on in, because how else can we keep an eye on the many trials of Donald Trump, the conservative legal movement's assaults on our rights, the Supreme Court's latest slate of environmental gutting, gun safety eviscerating cases on the docket. So follow Amicus wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes dropping every Saturday morning. All the issues factoring into this race have led to an unprecedented amount of outside attention and spending. The total spending on the race is around $45 million, almost triple the previous record of spending on a state Supreme Court race. That includes more than $20 million of outside spending from different groups and political parties.
2: Since launching her campaign, Janet Protasiewicz has raised almost $15 million, And Daniel Kelly has only raised $2.7 million. And there's a huge difference in the donors that each side has. Protasewicz has a lot of grassroots donors, small dollar donors. A lot of Daniel Kellys are big-time contributions from the Republican Party of the state, from county Republican parties. So he's sort of getting bailed out, while Janet Protasewicz is just absolutely crushing the kind of Bernie Sanders-style 2016 small-dollar contest. Um, there's also a lot of outside spending, and most of that outside spending is going toward Janet Protasiewicz as well. So we're absolutely seeing an enthusiasm gap, both from, like, the donor class, from the political class, and from the individual donors who have a vested interest in this race. So what we're seeing for Daniel Kelly is a lot of money being spent by the Republican National Committee, by the state Republican Party coming in, and trying to push the the race toward him. But we're also seeing uh, money coming in from the Bradley Foundation, which is this very, very conservative organization that has pushed for a long time to to make Wisconsin as red as possible. A lot of money coming in from the Liberty Justice Center, which does similar work and is especially focused on unions and crushing their power. So these are the people you would expect to be spending money and donating in this race. It's not a surprise. Um, And I think that kind of gives a helpful hint to voters who are unsure what Daniel Kelly stands for, like the same folks who back Republicans in the legislature are also backing his judicial candidacy.
1: So tell me every race in Wisconsin, from presidential to the governor's race to the last senatorial race, they are close all the time. How close is this race? What are the polls saying?
2: Interestingly, the polls are saying that this race is not super close. And that might be surprising because, you know, the the most recent Wisconsin Senate race was decided by like a point. The the 2020 presidential election was decided by a point. But most polls are showing that Janet Protosiewicz has a healthy lead. You know, different polls say different things, but it looks like she is more than a few points ahead of Daniel Kelly. And so I think what's what's kind of odd is that there appear to be a group of voters who are, like, super activated about Wisconsin Supreme Court races— And less activated about races for president and Senate or potentially more bipartisan or more centrist or more undecided when it comes to those overtly political positions. Whereas for whatever reason, like a a huge number of Democrats in the state have realized they've got to turn out and vote in these elections. And that appears to be exactly what they're doing.
1: Well, with a Democratic governor and a Republican legislature There's a certain amount of gridlock. It gives that state Supreme Court a lot of power.
2: Yes. And, you know, this is an issue that we've seen, especially after the Supreme Court overturned Roe. State Supreme Courts are deciding whether or not abortion will remain legal. They're deciding how far the state constitution goes in protecting reproductive rights. But this does go way beyond abortion. You know, this goes to redistricting. This goes to basic voting rights and democracy. This goes to a lot of uh, Second Amendment stuff, too. We've seen the state Supreme Court strike down various laws that say, cities have enacted to try to reduce gun violence and the the state supreme court has has taken a maximalist position On the right to bear arms and so it's like all these hot button issues that voters care a lot about they end up getting decided by the wisconsin supreme court with this gridlocked political situation the wisconsin supreme court's the ultimate arbiter and that appears to have sunk in for democrats and they are they are voting like they understand it at long last
1: (laughs) if protosewitz does pull this off it would tip the balance of the court to a liberal majority how significant would that be?
2: So, you know, I don't want to overstate things here because I actually think that the, the the four justices who would be in the majority, the new liberal majority, are not super, super progressive. You know, they are smart. Women, they're all women, which is kind of cool. <laughs> they're smart, intelligent, you know, very uh, accomplished women who really do believe in interpreting the law as written. They just see the law as a bastion of individual liberties and equality in a way that conservatives don't. So yes, I think they're clearly going to protect the right to abortion. I think they're clearly going to do something to expand voting rights and possibly limit gerrymandering. Beyond that, I don't think there's going to be like an earthquake in the law in Wisconsin. You're going to see a series of very high profile rulings that overturn some precedents that block some laws that are very, very damaging to the liberal project in the state. But other than that, you know, I think that we're just going to see a continued gridlock between the governor and the legislature. And the, the action will not come until 2024 when lawsuits start flying once again. And the Wisconsin Supreme Court will have to decide who gets to vote and who gets to be the winner.
1: And would you say it would give more liberal and progressive voters in Wisconsin a little energy after being kind of demoralized?
2: <laughs> yeah, I think kind of demoralized is putting it quietly. I, it's a, it, it would be a huge turnaround because truly, I mean, from, from 2010, when these labor-crushing laws came into effect, through 2018, when Tony Evers won the governorship, those were incredibly dark days for Wisconsin Democrats. They really felt like their state was sliding to the rights, that Republicans were building in these structural advantages that were gonna be impossible for them to overcome. And that, in part, led to their focus on the state Supreme Court. And I think this is what we're seeing now is like the culmination of a years-long strategy to fight back. And you don't see a similar game plan in states like Florida, where the Democratic Party has been crushed and shows no, almost no signs of life today. You don't see Democrats in places like even North Carolina that are that are very hotly contested coming up with a master plan to kind of take back their power. But we're seeing that in Wisconsin. And I think that'll be inspiring not only to Wisconsin liberals, but to liberals and Democrats all across the country.
1: We've seen all the outside spending, the huge sums in this race, which is a state Supreme Court race. Is this a sign of things to come, the new normal? Will we be seeing this races across the country from now on?
2: Absolutely. And especially in purple states where there's gridlock between the executive and legislative branches. So places like North Carolina and Pennsylvania, where justices to the Supreme Court of the state are also elected, we're already seeing a huge expansion in outside spending and individual candidate spending. And that is because when the two branches that are supposed to be in charge can't agree on anything and can't exercise power, that power tends to flow to the branch that will exercise it. And that is always the judiciary. And so I do think that what we're seeing in Wisconsin is the new normal, you know, maybe not tens of millions of dollars in every single race. But absolutely, donors are going to get activated about these elections because it has become painfully clear to everyone that the big political issues of the day are often decided by the courts. And when voters have the opportunity to weigh in on who's deciding those questions directly by casting a ballot, They're going to start paying more attention, and that is going to draw the flood of money. And these are going to become almost mini presidential races in each state that become major flashpoints for almost every political issue you can imagine.
1: Thank you, Mark Joseph Stern, for coming on What Next? We'll see what happens.
2: Thank you so much for having me on.
1: Mark Joseph Stern covers the courts for Slate. That's the show. If you're a fan of What Next, the best way to support our work is to join Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash whatnextplus to sign up. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Anna Phillips, Paige Osborne, and Madeline Ducharme. We're getting help from Laura Spencer. We're led by Alicia Montgomery with a little help from Susan Matthews. Ben Richman is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate. And I'm Mary C. Curtis, columnist at Roll Call and host of its Equal Time podcast. Find me on Twitter. I'm at mcurtisnc3. Thanks for listening. Talk to you tomorrow.
0: For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early,